0: Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Merrill Memo. On today's show we're going to talk about some of the minor changes to the Australia Day Ceremony. We'll also address the draft Macquarie River Master Plan and find out if our current CEO Murray Wood will be returning for another term. Good afternoon there. Matt, how are you, mate?
1: Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, Very good, actually. It's been pretty busy and hectic. I've said that the last couple of weeks, I think.
0: it's that time of the year, though, isn't it, eh? Builds up towards
1: Christmas. Absolutely. Absolutely crazy, yeah. But I just do want a little quick shout-out before we get started to Rod Towney. I served all my previous term on Dubbo City Council with Rod. We both got elected at the same time in 2004, and we served right through to the amalgamation in 2016, a lot of respect, a lot of time for Rod Town. He Enjoyed my time with him there. And I still catch up with him on a semi-regular basis, probably not often enough. Yes. Uh, but he had a heart attack this week. Oh, and did he really? And luckily for Rod, he took the advice of his son and uh, a, a good friend of his, a, a nurse, who said, get yourself to the hospital, Rod. Yes. And he got himself to the hospital just in time. Is he okay? Or? Yeah, yeah. He actually he sounded in pretty good spirits and I've spoken to him. And just one of those things that he's actually someone that I would consider quite healthy. Yes. He's getting a bit older now, but he's yes. quite healthy and looks after himself, goes to the doctor on a regular basis, gets regular checkups and really just out of the blue, next thing you know, heart attack. But he was overly impressed with the health services. In Dubbo Hospital, they took him straight down to Orange, Uh, did a bit of work on him down there and he's now back and he's back at home already and that was only that's all happened this week so it's all all pretty quick but just best wishes out there to Rod again I'm I'm sure he's got a lot of years left in him yet and I'm sure he'll recover from this He said a couple of weeks in recovery and he'll be right but I'm sure he'll be back out there and he still does some great work in the community so yeah um, definitely good luck to Rod there and and well wishes for your recovery
0: yes absolutely Look, Matt, uh, in regards to this week, it's uh, you've obviously just sort of starting off in regards to this week, one of the, the big things that generally happens once a month, of course, is the, the council meeting. Now, this week, there's been a couple of things there in regards to the council meeting that have uh, been pretty busy from the sound of things. You had a pretty full agenda there the other Thursday night.
1: It was, actually. It's, I think it's the longest meeting we've had this year. We got finished about probably quarter to nine. They start at 5.30. Yes. And so I can't remember meeting this that's, year that's being longer.
0: Meeting, is it? It's a long time to concentrate.
1: It is. You're exactly right. So it was a bit longer than all. But again, end of the year, there's a deadline coming called mm. Christmas. Yes. So yeah. lots of things that we had to get finished off before Christmas because our next meeting isn't until the 9th of February, so anything that might be happening in January, anything that we want to take care of now, we've really had to go through in this particular meeting, so it was a bit bigger than normal, which you're right, you've got to concentrate, mm. and lots to discuss, I suppose. It was mm. a really productive meeting, actually.
0: That's good, and looking at uh, some of the outcomes of the discussion, there's, I just want to start off with, uh, there's been some changes from the looks of things in regards to the Australia Day ceremonies over there in Wellington. Um now, what's actually happened there? Is there? Are we still running on the 26th of January? Is that the change or is there – what's actually going on there?
1: Well, there's changes in both ceremonies, both in Dubbo and in Wellington. Okay. And there's three subtle, I would say, but potentially significant changes. And it all comes back to – if I go back to Australia Day this year, Australia Day 2022, right. and we had – Two new councillors elected, well, we had lots of new councillors, but two new councillors that were Aboriginal in Lewis Burns and Pam Wells. Yes. And we said to Lewis, can you come along and do welcome to country on the day? Now, obviously, 26th of January has some painful meanings Mm. and some painful significance for the Aboriginal community. Some people call it Invasion Day, Sorry Day, Genocide Day, a whole range of different terms because obviously that's the day that in the past we, and I use the word celebrate, I'm going to talk about that and a little bit more, a bit more. But Mm. in the past, we've celebrated this day when Captain Philip put the flag down and next Mm. thing you know, there's some Aboriginal people there which they started removing from the planet. Mm. So there's a lot of history there and a lot of painful memories. So many Aboriginal people boycott that. Now, when we asked Lewis this year, he said, yes, I'm happy to come along and do that. Mm. And he spoke, and I just want to quote to you how he started his speech. He said, one of my election policies was unity. So I'm trying to bring the community together. And if you want to say it, you've got to do it. So I'm here to represent the Aboriginal community today, and I thank you all for letting me come down to welcome you. He obviously said a lot more than that. Mm. But the thing that struck me there, and I've talked to Lewis about it since then at length actually, was the whole concept about unity. He did talk about that in his election process. And so then he was really saying, well, no good talking about it. I've got to actually Mm. show it. I've got to demonstrate that. And so I said to Lewis, can we do more? You did Welcome to the Country. That was fantastic. Can we do more? We worked with Pam and Lewis over the last few months to just work out what we could do, work with our councillors as well, obviously. And so we've come up with a plan. And the plan is subtle. The first thing we're going to do is say, on Australia Day, normally you've got the mayor would give an address to the crowd, and then we have an ambassador. We don't pick the ambassadors. The Australian Citizenship Directory, Department, right. somewhere. Well, we'll go with that. Yeah, yes, that's yes. right. Uh, they pick an ambassador for each community and they send them out to us. So we get an ambassador, we find out maybe two weeks before the actual event who it is. We, yep. we can't select anyone, they just send us someone out. So they give an address, the ambassador gives an address. And then after all that, we just go and give out some awards for Australia Day and we do some citizen new citizenship or confer some citizenships. Yep. We thought, given the fact there is so much significance to this day for the Aboriginal community, wouldn't it be nice to have an Aboriginal elder speak and really speak about what this day means to them. Yes. Give us some context. We've got 60,000 years of history. Yes. Why not hear a bit about that? So that was the first change we suggested okay, in like both that. Dubbo and Wellington. Yes. The second part is, and sorry, go back one step, we've got 16.5% of our population Aboriginal across mm. the Dubbo LGA. So we think it's significant that we hear their voice and we hear what they've got to say about the day. Mm. The second thing is then, we've got 18.8% of our population born overseas. Mm. So after the ceremony... In terms of a bit of reflection to that multicultural community that we now have, this melting pot we've got, we said, wouldn't it be nice to have some form of multicultural food stalls market type event? Excellent. So we're going to plan that. Now that relies on the ability for people to have those market stalls available and to basically get all that set up. But that's the aim to do that. And then the third thing we wanted to do, which is where we hit a bit of a snag, was we don't want to change the date. So some people are out there lobbying to change the date. This yeah. council was not interested in changing the date. Yep. Twenty-sixth of January is Australia Day. Yes. But we thought, is there some way we can make it less painful for the Aboriginal community while letting the rest of the community still celebrate this day? And so we came up with the concept of going for a twilight event. Okay. So rather is that than
0: on the twenty-sixth still.
1: No, on the twenty-fifth. Okay. So the evening yeah. before. And this is a reflection of what happened in Canberra. Right, the Prime Minister of the day will go and announce the Australian of the Year, for example, and the various awards that's right. that are, have that
0: ceremony, the, don't they, at the front of Parliament House?
1: There and that's done the night before Australia yes. Day. Now, yes. no one says that's changing the date, mm. but it's the night before. That's nice. You have twilight events in a whole range of things. I know. I sometimes go to twilight mass. And at Christmas time rather than go to Christmas Day Mass because yep. you don't want to be interrupted from opening all your presents. So you go to Twilight Mass yep. yes. So, Yes. or it might be Midnight Mass, but you can go the night before. We're not saying we're changing the date of Christmas Day to 24th of December. Yep. We just go on in recognition of the next day.
0: That's right. So a similar vein a good, to that. See, that's a really good analogy, to be honest.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So one of the things there is that it, it, to some way, I think that from an Aboriginal perspective, and obviously these aren't my thoughts, these are after discussions with mm. some Aboriginal people, it means that it can just take away a bit of that pain from the 26th while still having the celebration of Australia Day. Now ultimately what we would like as councillors and as council is to say, let's make this day about how great it is to be an Australian. We've come maybe from another country. We might have been here for 60,000 years. We might have been here for 60,000 seconds. Mm. We've got a whole big melting pot and this is an absolutely wonderful nation. So let's celebrate that, but the word celebrate, I'm going to remove from my vocabulary when I talk about this event. I'm going to talk about this being an Australia Day event, an Australia Day ceremony, not a celebration, because for Aboriginal people, it's not a celebration, mm. but we can still recognise what's happening and still talk about this whole event. Mm. Now, that was the plan. Mm.
2: How did the, it all go?
1: The Department of Home Affairs controls what happens with Australian citizenships and Australia Day.
0: Right, okay. Because I was going to ask you the question, do, do we have the power in regards to do that as council, to actually... like? I there is obviously a lot of sensitivity around this right now in regards to that, and mm. uh, so I, I, I'm really liking what you're thinking here yeah. in regards to try to address the level of sensitivity here and try to put more of a, well, a community bonding experience into what should be a community bonded day. That's the whole point of Australia, isn't it, really?
1: Well, it is about. I so say I think it's about saying, "Woo, we've Absolutely. got a great Australia." We're How let's good talk that? about that. Yeah, this
0: is the greatest country in the world.
1: That's right. But again, let's recognise the past when yeah. we talk about Anzac Day, for example, we talk about the sacrifice that many people have made, and we talk about the country that's been created out of the sacrifice that many people have made. We don't celebrate the fact that those people died. No, it's a what day of do, remembrance. Isn't it it really? is. It's a day of remembrance, but it's also a day to say, we do live in a wonderful nation because of these people that have gone before mm. us. And it's probably not a perfect example or a perfect analogy, but it is something similar where let's not celebrate Australia Day, let's mm. recognise and acknowledge and also say we've got a great country. So, mm. so
0: what did the, the Department of Australian, Home Affairs say? What did they say to you? Yeah,
1: they weren't very happy about what we were talking about. Okay. The Australian Citizenship Ceremonies Code, let me let me say that our staff at council talked to them first and didn't get very far in what we wanted to do. Right. And then I took it up and said, well, let me have a bit of a chat to them. And I yes. sent a few emails off and had a few phone calls and I got nowhere as well. Yep. What they quoted to me was the Australian Citizenship Ceremonies Code. And that says... and I'm quoting here from the code, local government councils must hold a citizenship ceremony on 26 January as part of their Australia Day celebrations. So you have to do that, except, it continues on, councils that conferred citizenship on less than 20 people in the previous year are exempt from this requirement.
0: So how many did we have last year?
1: Well, Dubbo had way more than 20. Right. We have Wellington, though. Exactly right. So in Dubbo, we have a ceremony about every two to sometimes three months, and we normally get 30 to maybe even 40 at some of those ceremonies. Hmm. So in each ceremony we do for citizenship, we're getting more than 20. So straight away, that meant that the code applied to us. Local government councils must hold a citizenship ceremony on 26th January as part of their Australia Day celebrations.
0: So Dubbo has to stay, basically, on the 26th of January. You can't have the the night auction before. The
1: the people that I spoke to from the Department of Home Affairs said, you could apply for an exemption. I said, oh, great. What reasons would we be granted an exemption? And they Mm. said it would have to be extraordinary one-off exemptions that might be considered by the minister. And I said, so the fact that we want to change it to a twilight event for a better celebration for our community? They went, no, nah, you're dreaming. There's no. You, that's yeah. not an extraordinary circumstance that would apply for an exemption. So basically, Dubbo was snookered. But Wellington has less... 20 conferees during a year or during the last year in particular. So we could change the day, not change the date, change the day to a twilight event the night before. So that's what we resolved at council on Thursday night was to go ahead with the Aboriginal speaker at each ceremony, Dubbo and Wellington, to go ahead with the market store slash multicultural food event after Mm. the ceremony. And then the third component of that is is have a twilight event in Wellington. Now, let me stress that Mm. all of these changes are trial changes. We're going to go ahead with these changes. We've made the decision, the resolution of council, voted on by our councillors, unanimously agreed to. But after the event in 2023, we will then do a small survey, get some feedback, some community consultation and say, Mm. what did you think of it? How did Mm. that all go?
0: So tell me, are there any other councils out there right now? Have they got a twilight option running for Australia Day or will we be basically the first one with this?
1: I'm not aware of anyone that's doing it in the way we're doing it. I do know there were some councils in Sydney a couple of years ago and there was even one in Melbourne. And I remember they said, we're just going to change the date. We're Mm. going to have the day on a different celebration day, we're going to basically scrap the 26th of January and just do a completely different day. I remember day.
0: that, and it caused this enormous public outroar at the time, didn't it? There was, well, a, it was a, a public
1: outroar, or. and I was actually interviewed by a radio station, and I was asked the question, well, if you just said, forget about what the Department of Home Affairs says, and just have it on a separate day anyway, hmm. what's the penalty? And and I don't know what the penalty, or didn't know what the penalty was at that stage, I've got more information since, but I thought about that, and I said, well, I don't really want to be a counsellor on a council that recommends or proposes that we just ignore laws of the Commonwealth government. Mm. And I actually think if a council, for example, moved a resolution at a council meeting to recommend that we do something that was in contravention of a code, a policy, something in place by a state or a federal government Mm. as the mayor, as the chairman of a council meeting, I would actually rule that out of order.
0: Well, you'd have to, I'd suggest.
1: That's right. That's part of my job is to make sure that motions, that are brought forward are lawful motions. Yeah. Recommending we do something that's against a code or a policy to me sounds like an unlawful motion. So, yeah. without digging into the detail of each individual circumstance, I would be saying, Well, I don't have to rule that out of order. Yeah. Sorry, Councillor X. I'm not accepting your motion. Yeah. You can't move forward with that. So, but
0: what you're proposing, though, for Wellington is is not out of order. Correct. That's right. You know, if like, we did it, you're it for you're in Dubbo. line with what's been told to you here by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Home Affairs. Home yeah. Affairs. Sorry.
1: Yeah, that's that's for Wellington. That's right. If we did it for Dubbo, that would be. But I investigated a bit further after that journal asked me the question, mm. and found that the couple of the ones that, where they did change it, what actually happened there is that the federal government took away their right to do citizenship ceremonies. Oh, okay. Now, I've already mentioned how many people we have citizenship ceremonies for. And imagine then if people became citizens in this wonderful local government area we have, and then we said, sorry, you're now going to have to go somewhere else to become a citizen, Mm. somewhere else to be conferred your citizenship. So go to Gilgandra or Narrowmine or Parks or Orange, somewhere else, because we can't do it in our local government area. Now, That penalty sounds disappointing, but I still go back to that point that I would not want to be a councillor in a council that recommends we effectively break the law, might be too strong, but certainly break a code for a Commonwealth government. Now, I think this will all be a moot point, Mark, because I think we'll run this trial, hopefully it all goes well, and in, who knows, a year, maybe two years' time, I think this federal government will change that particular code so that if someone wanted to still have citizenship ceremonies and they had more than 20 conferries in a year, yeah. I think they'd say, sure, you want to have a twilight event? Knock yourself out. Go mm. for it. I think that's really a very old code. I don't know how old that code is, but that seems to me like a fairly old code and I think we'll do better and we can do better than that. Yes.
2: Now, Matt, the
0: uh,
1: the Macquarie
0: River Master Plan. Now, there's been a, a draft of this has been... Uh, poking around for a while, I said, well, at least there's been a lot of public opinion in regards to this. I know this has certainly caused a fair bit of debate uh, in regards to what to do with that Macquarie River frontage. Now, can you sort of take us back a little bit of a step in this? Um, first and foremost, what, what area of Dubbo are we actually talking about specifically here for our listeners? And what, what have been some of the ideas that have been suggested here in regards to what is going to constitute this master plan?
1: So this goes back to the very first meeting of council this year. So we had an extraordinary meeting at the end of last year, 23rd of December, we had our induction day, we had our extraordinary meeting. And then the first real meeting of council was in January this year. And this was a proposal or a resolution by council to go and look at the master plan. We had an old Regan Park master plan way back around 2013 Mm. from memory that was developed and went through some modifications in 2015. And the last council scrapped that plan, they scrapped that master plan, didn't replace it with a master plan and then there was a proposal, you may remember, last year for suddenly some area to be set aside for a rugby league club to use some of that Regan Park land because there was no other use set aside for that at the time. Just
0: just in regards to that, so this area of land we're actually talking about specifically, is this, does it start? I suppose you're going down there towards the Tamworth Street Bridge and you've got the the new um, cricket fields there on the right-hand side and the left-hand side... Again, they're probably the old vegetable farming type area over years gone by. and That area is still sort of set aside there. And you've got Osmond Villa and a few other places there behind that, and there's Macquarie Club. Is that where we're talking about this development sort of starting from?
1: That's the discussion around Regan Park. So when you go to the left, as you say, or yep. go to the southerly direction of Tamworth Street, yep. there's a little part there that's not technically part of the old Regan Park, and the rest of it was an old dairy so yes, you may remember right, okay. there was the Regan Park Dairy there. The so still we're going the up building. further
0: now to the, the housing estate. Is it the Regan Park Housing Estate? It goes all around that area there. So right, council the whole
1: area. Yeah, Council way back in 2004 resolved to purchase the original 59.57 hectares of land from the owners of Regan Park Dairy and classified the land as operational land. In the body of that report, it discussed the land being used for passive and active recreation needs. But at the beginning of this year, rather than focus just on Regan Park, what council resolved, so there was a council resolution in January to go forward and start doing this because there was nothing on the books at the time. And then in February, we had another resolution that basically tidied up that and allocated some money for a whole consultancy process. But rather than just look at Regan Park individually, mm. we actually said, councillors said, that we'd like to do two master plans for the River Corridor, okay. a north and a south. Right. And essentially, that would include Regan Park. But let's not focus just on Regan Park. Let's look at it a bit more holistically than that. The North Precinct focuses on the area north from the jean sur Bridge through to Devil's Hole and the south precinct starts at the LH Ford Bridge and down through where Regan Park...
0: It's a much bigger area than I've simply tried to explain, isn't it? Well, it is. So what
1: what you've talked about essentially is Regan Park. Again, it's not quite accurate there exactly, but that's the area that people Mm. generally think of as Regan Park. Mm. But why focus on just that one area? Mm. Let's look at a broader picture. Now... You may be aware there's been some commentary out there in the public. There's all sorts of ridiculous accusations that have been thrown around that council's already done a deal on this land and Mm. there's all these secret Mm. behind-the-scenes deals done, all sorts of ridiculous rubbish that's been thrown around. For what purpose, I'm not quite sure. But Mm. again, what we've done as councillors is we started a process in January. At that stage, there was nothing on the table, except the potential for it to be given, 10 hectares to be given to a rugby league club. And I don't think that was going to be given to them. I think it was going to be used by a rugby league club. But we started the process in January and there were no predetermined ideas. And I've talked about it often saying it was a blank sheet of paper. Now, when I say a blank sheet of paper, within reason, obviously there was not going to be something like a 10-storey motel planned there because it was on a floodplain. but a blank sheet of paper for what could reasonably put in those areas. Mm we've gone through a whole process now we've gone through lots of consultation there's been a survey there are about 450 responses we got from the survey okay there's that's been good
0: that's actually a pretty good response I a guess. very good response that's yeah. right
1: there have been workshops where people have come along and participated there have been a couple of hundred people that have participated in those workshops that's wonderful so our consultants have been worked very hard which is fantastic they yeah. love it they love getting that community feedback so there's been all these steps all these processes and now without going into detail and it's probably a hard medium to do that because it's a very visual yeah, process so that's right. you look
0: at, say, yeah, draw a picture in the mind of the listener there but it's very right. difficult
1: what I would say people is we've now got a draft Macquarie River master plan for both the north and the South precinct. So that now has been resolved at council last Thursday night to say, here is our draft master plan, mm. draft being the imperative word mm. there.
0: Still options available there for change.
1: That's right. And it's often easier for people to look at a master plan rather than just say you've got a blank sheet of paper, look at a master plan and say, what do you like about that? Mm. What don't you like about that? So it's sometimes easier for people to look at that and say, oh, this looks great here and do you had not thought about that? And then, oh, I'm not really sure if I love this one over here. Yeah. So essentially what I'm saying to people now is, Please have a look at that master plan. This is the whole process now. We want people to look at that. We want people to give us feedback on that. And you've got a fair bit of time to do it. It'll be placed on public exhibition from the 12th of December – through to the seventeenth of February.
0: Okay, so and where really will it got, actually be placed, Matt? Is that is there a spot where you'll see that?
1: Uh, so really, when we place things on public exhibition now, yeah. it's really about accessing it online. Oh, okay. You, you so can, it's more of the online sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's right. You okay. can still go into council building and request a paper copy of that, yeah. but most people access those online, mm. and and that's obviously easier for people because it's a pretty big document. Mm. So if it's in paper, if you prefer that, you can print it out yourself or come into council get a copy. But most people will probably look at it on their computer and look at the various parts of it, mm. and it goes into detail and shows some information about about where things are laid out. And again, it's a draft. This is all the feedback that the consultants have, and this is all the ideas, as much as possible. Mm. Obviously, there can be ideas that are completely opposing to each other, Mm. but all the ideas that people came up with fed into the consultants. This is their expertise. This is what they do for a living. They've put all that into this draft master plan. So have a look at that plan. I'd encourage people to go and have a look at that. Give us feedback. That's the whole idea of of that process being put out on public display. So go through and do that. The final report for the master plan won't come back to council until the 23rd of March. Right. That's when a final decision will be made by council to say, this is now a master plan going forward.
0: So just in regards to that, let's say we get to the point then, so 23rd of March is when the final decision council will make in regards to this master plan. Does council then turn around and, and set out a bit of a timeline then in regards to when they'd like to see this implemented. Is that the next step or how does it work? So based on finance, so I'm assuming it'd be a priority factor.
1: Yeah, and normally it's about a twenty year master plan, maybe ten year master, okay. master plan with some items. The idea is that here's our aspirational view mm. of what this area should look like. From there, we then pick off bits and pieces. So we see a grant that comes up for a particular area, for a particular type of project. So we say, oh great, we know we've got the Mm. potential for something we could use for that. So let's go and apply for that. This master plan says what we want it all to look like, Mm. but it's going to be made up of five different segments, ten different segments, a range of segments. So we know we could get this part done with that grant.
0: So it helps guide you in regards to where you're going to chase the grants, I suppose, as well. Exactly right, yeah. So we can
1: chase grants and also we can put money aside from a budgetary perspective. But normally, you don't create a master plan to then build it the next day. No. You create a master plan to show this is where we're headed and as the city grows, for example, we might need more of some type of area that might be along that particular master plan. So we might need something that we need to develop further. So we might have to Mm. put some money aside in a budget. But normally you chase grants. And I think the best example I can think of is the Elizabeth Park master plan. Before I got on council, so way back in the late 90s, they created a master plan for Elizabeth Park. And that had, if you look at that master plan now, you'll see components of what are up there. Now, Elizabeth Park, Park
0: for the listeners is which park's that one again?
1: That's where the Japanese gardens are. Oh yes, okay. Where the Sorry. adventure yes. playground, sensory garden, etc. Great example. So that started off, and again, you look at the original master plan and you go, "Oh yeah, there's some parts that are there, and gee, some parts have changed." Mm. That was one master plan that ran through for more than a decade, and then there was an updated master plan put together, and then that looks a bit more like what it looks Mm, like now, mm. but again, that's constantly changing. The Radri Cultural Tourism Centre that will be built there within the next two years, that one there is not on any master plan, not on any original master plan, but again, as that area morphs and changes, and as you develop parts of that, then you can see other areas that you have potential to develop. But we wouldn't have done anything at all if there was not that original master plan. That whole Japanese gardens area wouldn't have even started without having some master plan, and it's taken, at this stage, over 20 years to get to where we are, and you look at it now and you go, wow, I'm glad those councillors back in the late yeah. 90s had the vision to see what could potentially well, it's, happen it's there. It's probably
0: no different to most people and suggest they go and buy a, a bit of a rundown old style of a home and they've got their master plan of how the house is going to look and they've got their plan setting it out over the next 10 years, what they're going to focus on first.
1: That's yeah, a good example. It's probably not as formalised as a council one, yeah. but it, it's exactly right. You do that in your normal life. You do plan things, mm. you do have a vision, you do think about what you want to do. Oh, the kids are going to move out in two years' time, so that bedroom will become my gym. And mm. so, you, you've got these plans and these visions. You may not formalize them as such, mm. but in council terms, we do because we want the public to know about it. We also want people that are going to develop things. So, in this River uh, Macquarie River Master Plan, we're not talking about developers being involved, but when we develop Northwest Precincts, we've we've spoken about before. Yes. That's an indication to developers of what our residential real estate market might look like in years to come because yeah. we want people to invest in that area. when We want them to have confidence that they can invest in that area. Yes. So this master planning, if you're looking at a good council, you know that you can see master plans into the future to give everyone in the community, whether it be councillors, whether it be sporting groups, whether it be people who are interested in what's happening in the environment or anyone at all, just residents in general, you want them to have confidence mm. that someone has an idea of where you're going.
0: Absolutely. Well, my suggestion to all the listeners out there is jump online to the uh, Dubbo Regional website, Dubbo Regional Council website, and have a look at the plan and make a comment.
2: Uh, That's interesting,
0: Matt. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this uh, from the point of view of expressions of interest were uh, put out there to the old Dubbo City Bowling Club. That little site there in between Number One Oval and, I suggest, the Art Gallery. Now, it looks like uh, during the week there's been um, an expression of interest has actually been confirmed and been received. So talk us through it. Who uh, who's going to be moving into the site.
1: Yeah, there were multiple expressions of interest received and we did talk about this previously because, again, I encourage people, if they had an idea what they wanted to do with that particular site, it was a short-term process. As we've talked about before, back in May 2021, Council took possession of that site and the Western Plains Cultural Centre was requested to maintain the site. The acquisition had no strategy, no business plan, no master plan, if I want to mm. use that word again.
0: Yeah, it's a good example again, that's yeah. right.
1: For what was going to happen with that site, but for good or for bad, Council basically has acquired that site. What are we going to do with it? I have no idea. Mm. But we'll plan what to do with that. We'll look at a whole range of things to do and then put some places or some pieces in place to actually start down that path. But in the meantime, the ongoing costs associated with that site were in the vicinity of $80,000 to $90,000 per year with very little income against those expenses apart from when it was hired out to the Electoral Commission at the end of 2021 for the local government elections. It's a lot of
0: money for something to sit there, isn't it? It is,
1: just for the maintenance, for the upkeep Mm. of that site. It's costing us that amount of money. So rather than have it sit there while we go and do the planning, we put out, as we talked about before, those expressions of interest. And we said, tell us what you want to do. Tell us how much you're prepared to pay. We haven't put a set rent on it. It's just, tell us what you can do. And we'd prefer it to be some sort of community contribution, but Give us the options. Give us the information. That's what you got. And I was quite pleased that we got six submissions out of that process. That's excellent. Yeah, and they're public. The submissions- A variety
0: of different sort of things, I'd suggest, as well. They are.
1: And the details of those submissions are confidential, so I won't go into how much they all offered and all the details of that. But I can tell you the six ones. This is public information. Mm -hmm. Uh, New South Wales AECG Aboriginal Language and Culture Nest was one of them. Yeah. Around a Toy Library Limited- Debo Sims slash St. John's Junior Rugby League Football Club, Debo Filmmakers Inc., New South Wales Rugby Union slash New South Wales Positive Rugby Foundation and Mackey Entertainment Group. So we received six submissions, and they were fairly detailed in terms of what they wanted to do or their ideas for them, and obviously the amounts they were willing to pay for all of those. So those all came in. And and who was a
0: successful applicant?
1: The successful applicant out of all of those was one, and I can talk about the amount because a successful tenderer or a successful uh, person or organisation who puts in something like this, that's the only one that you find the amount for. You don't find the amount because it might give some sort of commercial advantage to people if they know everyone's quotes and everyone's prices. So the successful one out of all of those was New South Wales Rugby Union slash New South Wales Positive Rugby Foundation.
0: Right, okay.
1: They offered $74,460 per year for that. And the lease is a one-year lease with a one-year option. But I think we stressed last time, I think we've made a bit of a joke about it, how many times I said it during that yeah, podcast, yes. was that it was a maximum of two years. That's because right. after that, we don't want to be accused of throwing someone out on the street and yeah. turfing some good organisation out. It was always only ever going to be a two-year. They're obviously fully delivery. aware of
0: the fact this is a two-year lease arrangement.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. right. Now, that 74460 that they offered includes the outgoings. Now, the outgoings will be at cost. Mm. So at the moment, the estimate for those outgoings is about $43,000. Yep. If those outgoings are a bit more than that or a bit less than that, they'll pay that, again, based on mm. cost recovery. So that includes items such as building maintenance and power and security, along with taking care of the grounds maintenance. In the strange deal that council agreed to when it acquired this site, council is responsible for land tax and rates on the site, which equates to over $20,000 per year. These costs will still be covered by council. Importantly, the lease with New South Wales Rugby Union will stop the bleed from the site and return some positive revenue to council. And I want to stress, there are some people who have asked me about that, and they said, I thought that was set aside for cultural use. Why yeah. is a sporting club getting it? At this stage, it's not been set aside for any use. There's been nothing earmarked, nothing tagged for that. Someone might have said, oh, yes, we should use that for some cultural purpose, but there is no official council resolution or policy to say what that's going to be used for. As I said, we're actually going to go through that and yeah. do the planning. It may well be a cultural outcome for that long-term use of that. This doesn't preclude that. This yes. is literally, have I said it before, two years? Maximal two years, two mate. Years. I think
0: you've said it once or <laughs> twice or 17 times.
1: <laughs> so that's where that sits. Now, they'll do a range of things with that. The Rugby mm-hmm. uh, rugby New South Wales will do that. They'll use some training camps, I'm sure, there. They've got access to a couple of the the ovals there, number one, two, and three nearby. So I'm sure they'll use it in conjunction yeah. with that. But again, yeah. that was part of the thing we considered. There were some other great community groups in there as well. But again, it came down to a combination of the dollars and the community purpose. I feel confident, and I can't speak for other councils, but in my mind, let's say a community group offered seventy grand and a private operator offered, offered seventy grand, a for-profit organisation, mm. then I feel pretty confident that councils would have gone with the community mm. outcome. It would have been trickier if a private group offered one hundred and twenty grand mm. Mm. and a community mm. group offered seventy grand. Yes. Then we would have gone, gee, we want the community outcome, but we want the money because we need the money to fill potholes. Yep. Gee, which way do we go? I won't talk about the individual discussions but in that w- confidential meeting, but again, yeah. this was seemed like a good community outcome and I it think seemed so like so good too. money.
0: Because if you think about it, like this this is a, a great benefit for Dubbo. You've got these young kids out there who play rugby and uh, will be able to benefit from that here in town and have access to, I suggest, obviously, it sounds like a higher level standard of training. Um, I'd be suggesting too, there's obviously going to be higher level standard of coaching personnel could come into town as well. They give those opportunities too. So are they going to be using the actual, um, the old building site there, which was the old old pub scenario, you know, hotel scenario? Is that going to be like their clubhouse type idea? Is that part I'm of I'm not sure if at? exactly
1: their clubhouse, but they'll certainly be using that building. One thing to point out as well is that, at the moment, Dubbo Filmmakers have actually got a small office there. I've been there, I remember I had an inspection one day, and I, yep. I'm a big fan of Dubbo Filmmakers. We spoke about them last week with Joe Sonny. And so they've got a small part of that building, and they'll retain that. Part of this lease agreement we'll have with New South Wales Rugby Union says that the premises must be shared with the existing licence holder at Dubbo Filmmakers. So they were never going to be turfed out. Yep. That was always going to be part of that, where they've got a, a part of that building. But again, I think... Rugby will use the Mm. rest of the building. They'll have some offices in there maybe. Mm. Remember, the long-term aim for New South Wales Rugby is to go to the sports precinct that's being built near Charles Street University. So that's their long-term aim. So this may be a stepping stone for them to be in the Dubbo community. And then in two years' time, they'll probably be hopeful they'll be able to move out Mm. to where the CSU site is. So a whole range of things there. But again, we looked at that in terms of community outcomes, in terms of dollars being brought into council and made the decision based on all of that information. Excellent.
2: Now, another uh,
0: resolution was obviously uh, decided upon there in the council meeting on Thursday night about zero emissions fleet strategy. So I'm assuming this must be in regards to the council's cars that they're driving. Um, now, am I right in saying here that we're based on this decision, that uh, council's now going to be moving across to EV, the electrical vehicles? Is that is that the plan with this? And, um, Talk me through, too, because I've always been of the opinion, I thought, that um, is there a budget set in regards to how much councils can have for a car? Uh, and how do these electrical vehicles fall under those budgets? Is there a, How does the strategy work for this?
1: This is a really interesting time for EVs, for electric vehicles, and a really interesting time for people to analyse costs associated with vehicles. Now, one of the great things about an EV is that the running costs of an EV are very small. If you look at the electricity they use, it's dramatically cheaper than petrol, especially with petrol going up and up and up. Mm. Maintenance, I remember one of the EVs I've had previously, the manufacturer, I read an article on it, and the manufacturer said that there were 43 moving parts in the entire vehicle. Mm,
0: mm. Not
1: many moving parts. And that That's included, not many
0: at all compared to what I just saw with my mechanic today with the car.
1: Exactly. And and that included the door handles that popped out. Oh, so there was four me. of the 43 moving parts there. Yeah, So quite incredible there. The purchase price, though, when people look at an EV, they say, oh, they're too dear. I saw how much that was. It was advertised. They're way too expensive. But what most people don't do when they're buying a vehicle is consider the total cost of ownership. Mm. Now, maybe individuals don't do this at the same rate, but most businesses do, and certainly council does, they roll vehicles over on a regular basis. Mm. They don't buy a vehicle and say, this is my forever vehicle mm. and keep it's it for 50 years. It's a normal
0: lease arrangement, isn't it? At the end of the three or four-year term, you, you rolled over to the next car. That's yeah. right, and
1: it does vary. Different parts of our fleet, some of our fleet we might keep a bit longer. Mm. Our garbage trucks, for example, I think we keep them for about five years. Light fleet we might keep for a bit shorter than that. So the, the real essence here was, What we were keen to do from a counsellor perspective was to show leadership in trying to do everything we can in small steps to send an environmental message to the community, take some steps, some positive steps in terms of helping the environment. But also we understand that in that transition process, we don't want to send ourselves broke doing that. Mm. So I think that the things that you're looking for in terms of trying to save the planet are lots of little steps you can make maybe have a little bit of a cost to them, maybe not. But in council terms, I don't think it was acceptable to go out there and spend more money of the community's money when they want that money to go towards potholes. So we said to our fleet manager, and this is a previous resolution from council, we said, we'd like you to go out, and this is back in May, prepare a report for us that basically gives us some options and recommendations for our transition to a zero emission fleet. That's all our vehicles. Yep. So that includes your garbage
0: trucks eventually as well. includes everything, all our light vehicles,
1: all our trucks and and our light vehicles. Now, in doing that, the calculation was done by our fleet manager to look at a whole range of those vehicles and which ones are ready to go, where are we at. The report that's come back to council, and it came back previously, it then went out on public exhibition, zero submissions were received, and I did Mm -hmm. say to the fleet manager that means that you wrote a perfect report. Mm -hmm. No one had any comments, they loved everything you had to say (laughs) in there came back, essentially, that what we can start making movement on immediately, which will deliver what we want in terms of environmental message mm. and make some changes from an environmental perspective, actual real term, yes. CO2 production, yes. but also make sure we're not costing the community money, is in that light vehicle fleet. And it's quite fascinating. Now, these are numbers, and I I think our fleet manager does an excellent job. I think his numbers are conservative in the calculations he's done.
0: I reckon he's going to be basing this now over the four-year period, isn't
1: he? He is exactly right. But that's what we do anyway. With all of our fleet, with all of our vehicles, we don't say, oh, we just bought a new vehicle for $40,000, so that's $40,000 once off, and that's on our budget, and then zero from there on. He
0: needs to include the running costs over the next four years and what that cost will look like to over-council that time period. Is that right? That's right,
1: right. and the resale value. Don't forget. Yeah, okay, The most expensive part of owning a car for most people, not taxi drivers, but for most people, the most expensive part is the depreciation. You might buy a car for $40,000 and you sell the car for $20,000, well, that just cost you $20,000. The petrol that you put in over that time frame, you probably didn't put 20 grand worth of petrol in it. Again, taxi drivers would, but most people, they wouldn't put 20 grand worth of petrol in it over that time frame. Maybe they would, touch and go, but that depreciation figure is the most expensive part Mm. for most Mm. people. So he... Our fleet manager got a whole range of information from various fleet management companies out there okay. to get information about petrol vehicles, diesel vehicles, EVs, et cetera. What came back in this report, and again, don't forget, he's based on current petrol prices. Mm-hmm. They'll go up over the next four years, mm-hmm. based on a whole range of assumptions, which in the report, I won't bore you with the details, but sure. that's a public report. Anyone can go and read that p- report. In that, basically it came down to, in fact, the only assumption I'll mention is the 20,000 kilometres. The average number of kilometres done by one of our staff members in their vehicle is about 20,000 kilometres, which is pretty pretty similar. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So when you look at that, then he broke all of that down to a cost per kilometre.
0: Right.
1: So rather than, say, the purchase price and break it down for fuel costs and maintenance costs and then resale value, the easiest way to do a calculation, which was some way to compare apples to apples, Mm. was to do a cost per kilometre. So total cost of ownership. When you break that down, I'll read out the six models that he gave as an overview. In the past, some of our staff have had things like Mazda CX-5, Mazda CX-8, Isuzu MU-X, but then three models that he chose for comparison with an EV, Tesla Model 3, Polestar 2, Polestar is the Volvo EV model, if you like, and the Hyundai Kona. And the first thing you're going to say is, Far more expensive. That's right. The Tesla is incredibly expensive. Surely everyone tells me how expensive a Tesla is. Yep. And I'm going to read out the prices to you. The Tesla Model 3 was rated at a total cost of ownership, TCO, of $0.28 per kilometre. Wow. The Polestar 2, $0.35. The Hyundai Kona, $0.42. So the petrol, or the ICE vehicles, Mazda CX-5, $0.51. Isuzu MUX, $0.55. Mazda CX-8. $0.64. So when you look at that, it's actually terrible Mm. that we're still buying petrol vehicles. Yeah, that's right. But we didn't have a policy in place because the problem is, in the past, there was a limit on how much a staff member could pay as part of their salary package, how much they could pay for a vehicle. So, for example, directors have a limit of $40,000 XGST on their vehicle. Well, you can't buy those EVs for that amount. So they had to buy petrol vehicles because the policy said that's the limit you get. But now we can see via this report that it is actually cheaper to buy a dearer car, which sounds mm. somewhat mm. illogical, yep. but the total cost of ownership is cheaper with that now, after we've resolved this report and go forward mm. with this, the fleet manager and the CEO now have permission to allow individual staff members to buy those vehicles that are dearer in terms of a ticket price as long as the total cost of ownership is no dearer than the car they would have normally bought.
0: And look, in my layman's understanding of that, the way I would read it is this. Yes, Tesla is more expensive to buy as an initial outlay cost, but over the course of the four years, you will save money by purchasing the Tesla as opposed to one of these other options, which they're currently purchasing, purchasing which are more, or they're cheaper initially, but the running costs are more expensive. Correct. So at the end of the day, over four years, you're better off going with a Tesla option.
1: Yeah, and, and don't – this isn't an advertisement. No, it shouldn't be. It sounds but, a bit like doesn't it? But it does. I'm but, sorry to but say EV-based. Like EV EVs in general, yeah. yeah that's absolutely. where people have got to consider it. So don't look at the ticket price. Yes. Look at that total cost of ownership over yeah. the four-year time frame, And yeah. it's the same with so many things we do in our life. Sometimes we'll pay a bit more for it up front if we think it's going to be cheaper yes. over the long term people put solar panels on their house to reduce their electricity bill. Hmm. You might pay $5,000, $10,000 for your solar panels. Yep. That's a lot of money to fork out. That's a lot of electricity bills. Yep. But most people are smart enough to work out, if I pay five grand to reduce my electricity bill by $1,000 a year, in yep. five years' time, I'm in front. And
0: that's a great example because Dubbo is one of the biggest uptakes, what I've read there, in regards to putting the solar panels on. So, so Dubbo people, we do this. We, we understand the logic behind it. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating... And I'm, I must admit, sitting back too as a resident here of Dubbo, I'm also really proud of the council for the fact that... And I'll state my opinion in regards to the environmental side of things. I'm all for all EVs and I'm all for the fact too that as an envir- we have an environmental responsibility here with council to, to set the standard and to set the way for others to follow. I'm fully 100% behind that and I'll argue that with anybody. Don't worry about that. So I think this is a wonderful outcome. And more importantly too... From a a budgetary side of things, this is also responsible budgetary outlaying. The fact that you're looking at this over a four-year time frame as opposed to simply just the initial costing. So this is very exciting. So well done.
1: Well, Well, there's a couple of parts to it as well. I know some other councils that have heard that we've been working on this policy that have actually asked me when that policy comes through. Can we steal that policy? It's a public Mm. document. I can't stop it from happening, but I'm more than happy for other councils to learn from our experience and the work that our fleet manager has done in that. But I've also had private individuals who have, actually had a bit of a lightbulb moment. They've said, gee, I've been really wanting to do it because I've got an environmental bent or I want to be conscious of what I'm doing to the environment, but I just, I've never thought I could afford it. But actually... It's cheaper. Wow. That's incredible. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah. And even in my own personal business, I know that in the past we for our staff we've had hybrid vehicles. We've already gone to one electric vehicle and we've got another one coming in January for the replace the other Corolla hybrid that we've got in there. Yeah. So again, I, I do it with my own personal life. I haven't owned a, a petrol car, even a hybrid car since 2015. I've only mm. driven electric vehicles since then. So I have do it in yeah. my own personal life yep. and my own business life. But what people will do when they look at this report, and I'd encourage people to go and read this report, they look yeah. at that and they'll say, wow, I thought it was dearer, but it's actually not. Is there some way that I can get into an EV? Because it does make sense to actually do that. And even based on this report, you could have as much as maybe – more that you might spend on an EV and still be in front over a four-year time frame.
0: It's an amazing statistic. It It really is. is.
1: Yeah, it's quite incredible. So individuals, read this report, other councils, I think we're really leading the way in this. And again, you've hit the nail on the head, environmentally responsible and fiscally responsible as well. Absolutely. Now, during the week, uh, you had the official
0: opening of the Terra Bella Bridge. Did I say that correctly? Terra Bella? Terra Bella. Terra Bella? There we go. So, Terra. I said it right the first time there, Terabella Bridge opening on Wednesday. So whereabouts is the Terabella Bridge? Where <laughs> is this bridge? <laughs> it's a great name, by the way.
1: <laughs> uh, I actually go out bike riding occasionally when we're doing a long bike ride and we go out over Terrabella Bridge. So right. essentially go out Obley Road, turn left onto Banalong Road, keep going along there, and then you go across a little tiny bridge, Banalong Bridge, that one's going to be replaced soon because that's right. a really scary one Yeah. because when you go over on a road bike, the planks have got gaps between them that are big enough that a road bike can fit uh, down it. So, that's,
0: that's, that's the reason why I don't ride. I'll tell you <laughs> now, That's as simple as that. I try to run, but I don't ride.
1: <laughs> Funnily enough, you do get some people who are much braver than I do who will ride across it, figuring uh, they can balance on one plank man. all the way. I actually walk my bike across that particular Smart bridge. Move, mate. Smart But that, that one's going to be replaced in the very near future. That's another one we've got to happen. But if you keep going along there, mm. you – Essentially go to Geary, the back way then, and you do go across the Terabella Bridge. It's over the Little River. And I think the Little River's poorly named because over these last years, It hasn't been little at
0: all, has it? It's been a huge (laughs) river.
1: So that was a really good one because even riding over the old Terabella Bridge Mm. on my push bike, Mm. it was a single lane road. It had little tiny metal barriers on the edges that were very small and even riding over my push bike I'd go oh gee it's a bit dicey I don't want to fall over the edge there you can imagine driving across in a vehicle a bit dicier but I talked to some farmers out there on the day of the opening and they said some of their equipment like a header for example Mm. was so wide that the actual wheels were touching in some cases on the metal rails on the sides, wow. so and they're only low metal rails, That's but scary. they're driving across this bridge trying to balance it up on the oh. edges, and then the corner coming out of that is a bit yeah. tight as well. Okay, So it needed replacement for a whole range of reasons. It goes under uh, way too regularly with the right, little river, right. but also just getting farm movements around that area. Now, yeah. this is one of those great projects that I love because there were contributions from a whole range of areas. Off the top of my head, $2.716 million from the Fixing Country Roads Program. Okay. That's a state f- government based. That's state government. Yep. $454,000 from the Fixing Country Bridges Program, right. again state based. Yep. Uh, $700,000 from the Bridge Renewal Program, which is the federal yep. government one. Yep. And then council only put in. $500,000. That right? I mean, that's a lot of money, yeah, yeah, but yeah. better than the rest of it. So that was a $4.37 million bridge replacement wow. of which we only contributed $500,000. And I did make mention of that at the opening where we had yep. both federal and state representatives. I'm saying, I would love to do things more like this hmm. where a very small percentage of the total contribution was made by council yes. and the rest was put in by state and federal. So that's good. We've got more of those. We've got about another five Fixing Country Bridges program okay. bridges that we're in yep. the, the process of replacing, including that Benelong Bridge I'm mentioned and we've got about seven areas that are being repaired in the roads under that fixing country roads program
0: it's fantastic part of the
1: trick here is about knowing the grants to access so Mm. that particular bridge was one that council identified as one that we needed to replace it was a very old bridge went under regular. to actually demonstrate how much it goes under Mm. this bridge has been in use the new bridge since august this year right officially open this week
0: been a lot of rain since
1: august Correct, six times. Six times. The old bridge has gone wow. under and the new bridge hasn't. So that gives yeah, you an idea okay. of how many times yeah. people the were The importance of
0: it too to allow that access for people.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you've got a contribution like that. But again, council identified this was an area that needed to be replaced or mm. that bridge needed to be replaced. Then we went out and looked for the grants. And this is part of the the trick, if you like, mm. knowing what grants are available, what grants be applicable. Mm. How about we apply for this one over here? Is it worthwhile doing that? Mm. It takes time and money to apply for that. What's the likelihood of getting that? So all of these things, ultimately, sure, state mm. and federal Contributed the majority of the funds, but we started to put it all together, and it was our staff that then managed the entire project. You just picked up
2: a
0: really good point there, and and I suppose as people, we we sometimes in the community we forget about the daily organisation, the dynamics of what happens in council. Here's a classic example of just how well these guys are working down there in council, because I'd imagine there's there's only a limited pool of grant funding, so you're going to have lots and lots of different councils all trying to apply for this level of funding. It's not this unlimited, you know bucket of money there's ready for people to go and get their hands into. You've got to apply for this stuff. So to be able to have a group of people down there right now, and they're doing a wonderful job from the sound of things, to access and put the right grants in it, to know the right way about, uh, you know, what paperwork needs to be filled out and which box need to be ticked. These guys are doing a great job to get that money through for us.
1: Yeah, you're spot on. It is a process. The other thing you've got to consider is a couple of things. The cost of actually putting a grant in. Now, there's not a fee. Mm -hmm. The government doesn't charge us a fee to go and submit a grant. But our staff get paid wages and if you go through a grant process that you think you've got no chance of getting and it's going to take a week to put that together, Hmm. you think, is it really worthwhile our staff doing that? So you're really trying to look for the grants where you know you've got a reasonable chance of getting. You don't get every grant, but you don't want to be wasting your time chasing lots of grants that are just ridiculous grants you're never going to get. And then the other part of that is sometimes as a co-contribution. So for example, people might say, oh, why didn't you put in for that grant? It was a million dollars on offer, but that million dollars might have been dollar for dollar match so we might Mm. have had to put up a million dollars towards that Mm. and we didn't have that million dollars or sometimes they might be two for one matching so that million dollar grant needs two million dollars from council to be able to get that one million dollars now if it's a project you're going to do anyway then absolutely it's worthwhile getting that grant but if it's oh we will go and apply for that just because there's a grant available then where'd that two million come from that's out of budget money so you can't just click your fingers and make it come out of somewhere. You've got to pull it from somewhere else, another budget, another project you might be working on. So it's a pretty tricky process with that grant or the grant process. I have talked in the past, both the state and federal representatives, and I've said all this work that happens with grant funding, all this process we've got to go through, all the time it takes us to do that, Mm. ultimately the best thing to happen would be that the state and the federal government says, on average, this is how much money each council area gets or divide it up in some even-handed way and there's a chunk of money you've got. You're the council. You know what to do with it best. Go for it and use it. Mm. And they've always laughed at me and said, well, where could I get to cut a ribbon if I did that? So (laughs) sometimes it is about each of those levels of government being able to come along and I was just looking at a picture there from the... uh, opening we did this week and sure enough we had myself and two fellow councillors there Damien Marne and, and Deputy Mayor Richard Ivey but there was a state government representative there federal government representative there cutting a ribbon so, you, a
0: lot of people there wanting to cut that ribbon
1: that's exactly right so unfortunately my grand idea of making it very easy to use and access those funds is never going to happen that I can see anyway
0: not why you got ribbons to cut <laughs>
2: Matt, uh, This is
0: really interesting, this little point here. There was um, a discussion during the week on the multicultural service gap analysis um, that took place last Tuesday. And uh, the reason why I sort of want to bring this about is because there's an interesting figure I've got here in front of me, which states that 18.8% – now, you mentioned this early in the program – of our population today was born overseas. Now, that would obviously constitute us being a multicultural background um, in regards to it. So what is council hoping to do with this? Is, are we doing enough here in council, uh, here in Dubbo, for our multicultural community?
1: This is one of those really tricky areas where a lot of people turn to council to say, please solve the problems of the world. But there are certain things that don't come under council's responsibility. So how far do we get involved in these? How much do we do compared to leaving it for the levels of government or the organisations that might be responsible for it. And this is one that Councillor Shibli Shadri has brought forward, where he often gets approached by people from the multicultural community, people that might be from Bangladesh like Shibli's from, or India or Nepal, some of these various countries, and they see Shibli as a leader in that community, in Mm. our community, which is absolutely fine. But what Shibli finds himself doing is, helping people out, they are looking for somewhere to rent, or they're mm. trying to find a sporting group to join. So he's or
0: almost becoming like a reference point for them, for council
1: somewhat. Almost a liaison officer, yeah, yeah, yeah. a reference point, a go-to person. And yeah. that's fine. she a very nice person and he's happy to do all of that. Mm. But what he's identified is maybe there is some way that council could help out in this process. The thing is that there are lots of services in the community already mainly state government services, some federal government services designed to help people from varying backgrounds, because some people might be in Sydney, for example, that have only moved to Sydney a year ago, and then their visa might stipulate they need to go regional, or they right. wake up to themselves and say, wow, regional areas are much better, Absolutely. I might go regional. Yes,
0: finally, realize this,
1: But they don't know enough about how things work mm. to come out to a regional area and then just make it all happen, make it all fall into place. So the gap analysis that we're really looking at is just a bit of an analysis of those services that are there. Mm. We don't want to provide the services. We just don't have the money to do it. Simple as that. But by looking at the services that are available Mm. and seeing what gaps there are there, then we can communicate that to other levels of government and tell them those gaps that are there. But the other thing I think we can do with this is really look at some way of a reference point for people that come along to say, here is a list of the services that are available. So if you're trying to find somewhere to rent, if you're trying to find somewhere to access banking services or access medical services or whatever it might be, here's a list of places that might be able to help you out if you've got a non-English speaking background in particular or just different countries, different cultures, how does it operate in your country versus how does it operate in this country. It's different often. So having that help and having that process there is a good way to let council help people in our community without incurring a huge amount of costs and without really making, I suppose, us provide services that are way outside what we should be providing.
0: Absolutely. Like if you think about it, if you've got one-fifth of our population here in Dubbo coming from – multicultural background at least from somewhere not obviously born here in australia base if you've got one-fifth of our population there whatever support networks we have available i'd imagine when you come to this town here of dubbo that you want to have a place you can go to to sort of go okay where can i access my services and it's terrific the council's you know preparing to want to do that that's fantastic
1: yeah that's right and again we've always got to be careful i'd love council to provide every service we possibly Mm. could but we've also got a budget to worry about and and i think I've seen previous councils and other councils in other areas make the mistake of trying to do everything for everyone and then look at their bottom line and say, that's great, Mm. but in five years' time, we'll be broke. So you can't do that. You've got to be sensible with that. But Mm. I think what you look for in things like this is how can we be some way in terms of joining people together, giving people some indication of where to go, basically joining the dots for people rather than having to provide the dots yourselves.
0: It's a great initiative.
2: Also, during the week, Matt, uh,
0: you had the pleasure of obviously going along to the CSU graduation, the old Charles Sturt University. That's my old alumni, by the way, down there in Bathurst. Um, the old teaching college days. wasn't actually called CSU back there, but I digress. <laughs> the, um, so, of course, the graduation here in Dubbo. So, how was that from the point of view of what, and let's sort of maybe, I'm sure it was a great day, but what are the uh, main course of study that's happening right now? Where are the graduates coming from?
1: It's an interesting question. I was not thinking about that when I was thinking about this particular story, but certainly we saw nursing being a big part of it. Uh, a lot of Individual degrees might have been master's, for example, or second degrees that people might have achieved were very much one-off subjects, but there was a bit of cyber security there, so I oh, thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's and, a growing industry, oh, isn't it, Unfortunately, eh? you're absolutely spot on. So there's there's a, a range of things there. Obviously, they've still got teaching that they do there, but yep. again, one of the great things about Charles Sturt University, as you've identified, you talked about Bathurst, for example, hmm. the range of campuses you've got, and you can study from different campuses. Charles Sturt is really good at doing Regional education. They now, it, it well. took a pandemic for many universities to discover that you can educate people remotely, but obviously Dubbo has been doing it for a long time and Charles University in general has been doing it for a long mm-hmm. time. What I get excited by about this sort of graduation ceremony mm-hmm. or this graduation ceremony is that I just love the fact that you see people there graduating. It's always very exciting to watch your graduation day, but you talk to some of those people afterwards and some of them say, I never would have done this degree, Hmm. maybe their first degree, maybe they've come back for another degree. I never would have considered it if we didn't have the university here. I might have thought about doing something, but I just didn't have the time to go and locate myself in Sydney or in some other place. But in Dubbo, I could get this degree. Fantastic. That just sounds like a, a really great thing. So this particular campus had the foundation stone laid in 1999. It was way back I think when you talked about going to Bathurst, that was probably Mitchell College of Advanced Education, wasn't it? It was, mate. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, those was the
0: old Mitchell days.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't that long after you would have been there, around 989, that Charles Sturt University took some of those advanced education colleges. I think down in Wagga, it was called the Riverina College of yes. Advanced Education. So they took those various colleges and put them together into a university. I'll, so it's I'll a very I'll young a
0: quick little story here for you. I was actually, uh, when I graduated from uh, Mitchell College. We had the option, our year group, of either having on our uh, bachelor certificates at the time, whether or not it was going to be Mitchell College or Charles University.
1: And what did and you take? Well,
0: actually, we all chose Charles University because we actually felt that university sounded better than a college.
1: That's <laughs> 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 Fair enough. So, so there you go.
0: I'm probably one of the, the originals, the OG, right here from CSU. There it is. Proud yeah. alumni.
1: But that, that's, and that's fantastic. So... You went as far away as Bathurst, so a couple of oh, hours yeah, away. Was, absolutely. But imagine if it had been in Dubbo at the time, it would have been fantastic yeah, to be able to yeah. do
0: that well, here the, in The Dubbo. cost of doing university is, is quite a prohibitive cost for a lot of people. And just as you say before, just sort of moving, getting your whole family up and moving somewhere else, if you're a, an older person, mature person in that space, just to do a degree or a young person who, you know, you've got your you're set up here in Dubbo with your part time jobs, you've got your family's you know, structure and communication, networks, all set. So to have CSU here, it's so important for a town like Dubbo to have something like that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And it was actually interesting. The first time I was asked to go out and do a a talk or a welcome to the students in an O-week process, I just had ideas in my head when I was going out to Charles Sturt and I thought about my O-week back. I was 17 during my O-week back at uni and I was thinking about that and just some of the stuff that happened. I think, oh, good, I'll tell them a few stories and just get them excited about it. And I got out there and I was looking around before I spoke and I'm looking for where the students were. I could see lots of parents in yes, the audience, yes. but none of the students. And the person sitting beside me from the university, I, I just whispered to them during the, the first part of the ceremony, I said, where are the students, where are the students out there? Because <laughs> I can see the parents of the students going to come in. And they said, no, no, they're the students. Oh, they are. <laughs> and, I went, oh. and so I realised very quickly that Charles Sturt had a lot of people that came back, or maybe Mm. their life took them in a certain direction, they might have got to their 30s or older or maybe younger, but they might have got to that stage in their life where they said, I wanted to go and pursue that original degree, or maybe I've already got my degree, I'm coming back for a second degree. And so very quickly in the back of my head, I had to change that because walking down the middle of the town in an academic gown, carrying a spoon and, yep. and having some sort of pub crawl was probably not the right <laughs> talk to give to them for a, a bunch of people that have already, many of them probably already had children, that's maybe right. married. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So a different feel about it. But that's yeah. also great that people can be in our society, in our mm. community, and decide they want to further their education, mm do something better for themselves, get a different job, a whole range of things. So I think it's a really important part of the landscape of Dubbo, really important part of what we've got in what we can offer people from across Mm. the world to come and live here. Absolutely. And well done to Charles Sturt. It's a tough gig out there in the university land at the moment. And so well done for them to continue on. And it is exciting just seeing those people there and the whole graduation process is all very exciting.
0: Well done.
2: (laughs) I'm going to notice too that, uh,
0: again, you seem to go to a lot of meetings. Here's another one for you. The Alliance of the Western Councils meeting that which was held in uh, Narrowmine on Friday. Now, was this the old OROC group? Was this, this
1: this group? Pretty much. This is OROC by a different name. And just a quick bit of history there. OROC stood for Iran, a Region of Councils. The state government had this process where they had a range of ROCs, ROC, so you'd call it Iran a region of councils, or Centrock was central region of councils. Yep. For whatever reason, council or sorry, the state government said that maybe we should change this model a bit. Maybe we should go to a model called JO, joint organisations, and the state government was going to give some money to those joint organisations. Mm. Unfortunately, our last council decided they didn't want anything to do with other councils around the region. Okay. They decided that it would be better for them to stand alone. And a couple of things with that, I did hear one quote from a, another mayor out west mm-hmm. who said that someone from our council said, there's no votes for me out in Ningen, why would I bother about being in an organisation that was involving mm-hmm. Ningen? Fairly rough view if that was mm-hmm. the case, because... The thing here is that Dubbo is important to the entire region. Oh, we're massive. But the entire region is important yeah. to Dubbo. Yeah. So I used to enjoy going to OROC meetings when I was mayor previously, and there's a lot that you can share. So you do gain advantages for Dubbo out of all of that sharing. And certainly those regional areas being strong, if Dubbo can help them be strong, yeah. that helps Dubbo as well. So it's very much a symbiotic relationship in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. When this council was elected – it was actually Councillor Lewis Burns in January this year, that first meeting when we had some resolutions come through council. And he actually moved a resolution that we rejoin some of these organisations that had been there in the past. Yeah. Unfortunately, OROC had disbanded, collapsed. The JO didn't ever get going really without Dubbo involved because you take Dubbo out of mm. this area and mm. you take out the major population base. Say, yeah, absolutely. So there was a new one. So I actually contacted the other groups and we had some discussion around some of those other councils. Yeah. And I said, so what can we do? It'll be good to get together again. The old OROC work, but we can't really call it OROC because the state government might be happy with that now. Yeah. So we called it Alliance of Western Councils. Excellent. And as long as no one from the state government's listening, it's basically the same as the old OROC. Excellent. Don't tell them, we okay? This
0: just, say, just <laughs> keep between ourselves. That's right. Know?
1: It's called the Alliance of Western Councils. Nice. It's got 13 councils in that. Okay. Those 13 councils look remarkably similar mm. to the councils that used to be in the old OROC.
2: Funny how that works. <laughs> but it's not OROC, okay? No, no, no. We're not going to say that name again. And so we're
1: talking about the councils that are generally west of Dubbo. You've yeah. got Mudgee in there, so that's not really west of Dubbo. But when yeah. you talk about the councils, you talk about Gilgandra and Warren Bungleshire mm. Council, and sorry, when I say Mudgee, Midwestern Regional Council, it's mm. going be technically mm. correct, and Canamble and Walgett and Brewarrina, Burke, Cobar, Ningen, which is Boganshire yep. Council, Warren... Narrow Mine and Dubbo. Hopefully, that's 13. Hopefully, I haven't left oh, anyone out there. I reckon you pretty much got most of Did I mention Gilgandra? I hope so. You did now, anyway. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> the other
0: thing I love about this, though, is the fact that I can see the advantages of getting all your councils together. And I'd imagine, just at the top of my head, just thinking it through, that uh, joint submissions to, uh, if you're looking for some financial funding, might even be on roads or something like that could be an option. Getting together as a group to sort of, as a power base for that region, that would strike a fair bit of power. Uh, at state level and at federal level, I'd
1: suggest you've got a couple of advantages there. One is somewhat like you talk about with joint submissions, but it's more joint tenders we do together. Oh, okay, yes. So yes. electricity, for example, thirteen councils putting in a bid for electricity hmm. will probably get a cheaper price than thirteen individual councils putting them in. When we go out for bitumen, for example, we might have not all 13 in some cases because transport can be part of that process, but there might be some of those councils might put in some bitumen tenders together. Mm. You might form other alliances. So we've got the Lower Macquarie Water Utilities Alliance. It was formed out of that to try and get best practice for water and what's interesting about that is that mm. Dubbo actually formed that off track here slightly, but Dubbo actually formed that lower Macquarie Water Utilities Alliance. That was they were instrumental. Stuart Mcleod, when he was at council oh, yes, as remember, a staff Stuart, member, yes. he yeah. was instrumental in getting that going. And we thought we were running at fairly well best practice, but we thought it was good for the whole Macquarie River, for lots of councils. And then in the end, we had many of those councils join in mm. to just get that best practice in water management going forward. Oh, now. We dropped out of that as we did of so many other organizations, mm. and we dropped out of that. And next thing you know, Dubbo had a boil water alert. Now, if we hadn't been in that and have someone external looking at our processes, mm. maybe we wouldn't have had a boil water alert. Mm. We also, as you know, have no fluoride in our water for the last three and a half almost four years. Mm. I guarantee if we were still in that Long Macquarie Water UTs Alliance, mm. then someone there would have said, what are you doing about that no fluoride? Are you taking some action on that? There would have been some discussion around that. You move out of those organisations, then you miss those little things that can Mm, be so important. mm. So the other part of it is that you also get better access to the government. For example, last Friday when we had the meeting, we had a representative from Transport for New South Wales come along and give us a talk and give us some updates on what was happening around the region. We had a representative come along from regional New South Wales, so trying to work out ways to get better things happening in regional areas, better population growth mm. in regional areas. Again, it's much easier for those people to come along and talk to saying, 13 exactly councils. That's
0: exactly right. It works both ways, doesn't it? Like you've yeah. got then a situation with a guest speaker and someone from Sydney coming up. I'm sure he or she would much prefer to be able to speak to 14 heads as a group rather than individually have to speak to 14 heads and go all around the place to speak, them they're like that. So yeah, that's
1: right. So if you had 13 individual councils asked for a meeting mm. with the Depth Secretary of, the, of Regional New South Wales, for example you'd be struggling to get all those people fitting in. Yes. Whereas one meeting with thirty of them, fantastic. Mm. Also had a minister come along today. We often see ministers come along and talk to us. So it is quite productive from that perspective. But it can also be shared experiences. One council might say we've got a particular problem with this has anyone else seen that mm. oh yes we've had that problem before we had that two years ago here's mm. how we addressed it oh good can i have a look at your policy all those sort of things mm. all those sort of discussions our ev policy was briefly discussed there but we'll probably do a presentation on that in future yeah, good, so good. other good. councils can look at that so a yeah. whole range of things there but i really do enjoy the group of people that we do meet with and they're all there for really honest genuine reasons and yeah. we had some great discussions there
0: well great to hear us all back together again
2: Now last Wednesday
0: night, uh, the Delroy Clontarf Academy. Now they had their end of year award ceremony the other day. Now this what a great organisation is Clontarf. They've been around now for a while too, haven't they?
1: They have been around for a long time actually. And so one of the things I really enjoy about this is just going along, listening to the stories. Listening to how these boys, and they are boys, develop through the Clontarf program. And sometimes I'll see one that I might have seen a few years ago. Next, you know, he's grown up a bit or he might be working for Clontarf. But the development in him is quite incredible. And what I really enjoyed at these particular awards on Wednesday night was that when they were giving out some of the awards, they'd obviously told the boys that anyone that wins an award, you've got to stand at the microphone. And say, thank you. And some of them, you could see how nervous they are now. Some yes. of these kids are in year seven. Yes. So at that age, when you've got an audience, it's got teachers and your yeah, peers in a it. A lot and of parents. Uh, self-awareness
0: at the moment. Oh,
1: absolutely mm. right. So standing there at the microphone saying, thank you to my teachers or the Clontarf boys, or my parents, they were very nervous, but they did it. They all Wonderful. did it. No, no one balked. No one shirked their duty. And that's good for their development, just standing in front of a group of people seeing a microphone. Yeah, Yeah, that's really good for their development. So I really enjoyed it, and it's good chatting to some of the boys, just finding out what they get up to, the training programs they're doing, what they've got got planned for the holidays, what they've got planned for next year. Uh, Again, some people talk about that and and are concerned about how much money is put into it, but there's a lot of that money is put in by private organisations. So it's not all this government money that's being put into this program, but as the teachers that spoke on the night talked about This is a program that just works. You can have a whole range of programs and do all sorts of wonderful things, but this program just works. And you don't get always a program that you can stand there in front of a crowd and say, It just works. So I think, you know, well done to Clontaf. That was a Delroy campus. Obviously, you've got the South campus Mm. and you've got the Senior campus as well. That's right. And the different award ceremonies for each of those. And I get along to as many as I possibly can. But yeah, look, I really enjoy that. And it's, I think, the, the boys, especially those younger boys, as they get older, they get a bit cynical, but they like having the mayor. I sit down at one of the tables with yes. the young boys and yes. they like chatting to the mayor as well. So well done to Tontaf. Keep that good work going.
0: Absolutely. Well done, guys.
2: Oh,
0: look, it's, uh, it's not this time of year, is it, without having a couple of morning teas to attend? Surely you must get along to a few of these ones and I, I would suggest there would be nothing better than to go along to a, a senior's Christmas morning tea. Now, if, they're, uh, if these seniors' Christmas morning tea that you've been along to, if they're anything like the uh, the morning teas my grandmother used to put on uh, when I was a kid, I tell you what, I'd be at every single one. So, now, you went along to a couple this week, mate. You went to the one in Dubbo and you went to the one in Wellington. That's so, right. So, now, d- talk us through the, these these senior morning teas. Is this something that is run by, by council? Is this that then we offer all the seniors to go along to like, How does that actually work?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, we do actually have a process where we do put on a morning tea, council puts on a morning tea, Invites along people from various aged care facilities, the general public, and people can come along. Now they get me along to say Merry Christmas, obviously. Yes. I normally do some poetry. I did a bit of yeah. Christmas poetry for them at each sing one of these. your best Bing
0: Crosby white Christmas or something. I do didn't, you? Do didn't do any singing. I just can't sing. Maybe no. next year.
1: I stick with poetry, <laughs> and and then they'll normally have a few schools come along and do some entertainment. Might be some singing, might be some dancing for them. Mm. And the seniors, I normally go around and sit at some of the tables and have a chat to a few of the seniors Lovely. there. And again, they just like to get out, have a chat to people and it's another event for them. Of course Santa Claus is there, Santa Claus was out handing out a few gifts and lollies to people throughout the audience. But again, it's just that nice community we've got and it's good to see people come along and join in these various activities. And for them, an outing, for some of those people in in the Mm. HKF cities in particular, they love getting out and just being part of the community and telling me some stories from when they were working in their youth or some project they were involved with at council or you know, they used to plant trees somewhere and there's still a tree there they planted that's now growing up. So it's actually a a really nice morning. So yes. We had one in Wellington and one in Dubbo. There's other morning teas that occur throughout the year, but the Christmas Mm. ones always seem a bit special.
0: Oh, well done again. Now, I raised this right at the start of the top of the program, actually, in regards to our uh, current CEO. I'm hoping he's uh, still our current CEO. I don't want to sort of preempt any points of discussion here, but uh, Murray Wood. Now, there's been obviously a part of – we talked about this – a couple of weeks ago too, about his performance review. Now, I know there's a whole process that goes into this, and this is not just simply a just turn up, shake the hand, and say, well done, Murray. You did a good job, mate. We'll throw you uh, back into the lines again for another 12 months. Um... Now, did Murray get through the process first and foremost? <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to put it out there. Did he get through?
1: He, is he going to continue to be our CEO? He is. He is. And again, if you were going to remove a CEO, you probably wouldn't wait till the review. You might do it at when he, whatever time. Yeah, yes, I, I'd like to think it. we would have
0: got a bit more of a heads up if that had been the case. That's but, right. wasn't oh, that good. Well done, Murray.
1: That's right. So now this is part of the process. When a council employs a CEO, that's the only employee they have. Hmm. There are about five hundred permanent staff plus casuals at council. But council laws, again, if you read the Local Mac 993, should not direct any of those staff to do anything at all. All we can do is direct our CEO, and CEO and general manager are interchangeable terms. They're both the same. They don't, there's yeah. no difference in the meaning there. Direct our CEO via council resolution, effectively, mm. to undertake activities throughout the council. That's it's his job with his staff to actually go forward and undertake those activities. Yep. But as with any employment arrangement, you should do a review process. Murray was first employed by council before we were elected back in October last year. That was when he was given his contract. And essentially, the process from there is that every year you should do, it's not compulsory, but you should do a formal review. Every six months, you should do a slightly less formal review. So mm-hmm. what we do is every six months, I'll sit down with Murray and we'll go through uh a semi-formal review, I'd call it, but it's only one-on-one. But we still go through KPIs and track how things are going and basically give feedback from that perspective. But the 12-month review process, if it's done correctly, should involve a few councillors and, and a very formal process. Yeah. We've got a process that we take the three chairs of our standing committees. So that's Damien Marne, Jess Goff, and Josh Black and the mayor and the deputy mayor, being myself and Richard Ivey, and that's the review committee. So we did that review this this year, recently, and this is where it's come to council. And so, again, after that one-year anniversary, we did that review. Unfortunately, Josh Black couldn't make it to that particular meeting, so we had four councillors on that review committee. We've got an external consultant from our employment solutions company and obviously Murray. Hmm. And we spent, I'm going to guess, two and a half hours, but it might have even been a bit longer than that, Hmm. going through... The various KPIs that we've set, these are the ones that councillors have set for Murray. All those KPIs, he actually gave a score for each of those of his own assessment of how he was progressing on each of those. Self assessment. That's right. Then we gave a score on those. We tabulate all those, compare those, give feedback, go through that whole process. Then that's step one. Step two, we then come back. That review committee comes back. To council is in the full body of council hmm. and go through and have that discussion. So that review committee gives feedback. There's all the hmm. paperwork. There's all the information, the notes, the comments, etc. All there. Councillors can read that, and then out of all that, we then make a recommendation in terms of what to do with the CEO going forward. Yep. In this case, and it's a public process. Not not all that information I've talked about that's all confidential. Yep. But the outcome of that and the resolution of council is public and so people can read that exact resolution. But essentially, we commended Murray on the excellent work he's been doing over the last year, keep up the good work. And basically, we think the relationship that he's got with councillors, with the community, and the direction we're going in is all fantastic. So basically keep up that good work. Again, you can read the exact resolution if you wish, look up the council Mm. papers on the minutes there. But it is a very formal process. We do it that way deliberately. It should be done that way because it's all well and good to sit around and say, hey, Mr CEO, you're a great guy and everything's fine. But you need that formal process Mm. just to make sure you catch anything that might be going wrong before it becomes a major issue and also give recognition when things are going right. Too often, people look at employment reviews as somewhere to catch people out when it should be about making sure that people are given the pat on the back when they deserve Mm. it.
0: Acknowledge what you've done well.
1: That's right, and maybe giving a slight steer in the right direction if they haven't done well. Absolutely. Keeping in mind that the CEO doesn't have anyone sitting above him in an employment scenario Mm. to go and answer to to get that direct feedback. He does rely on myself as the mayor a lot for that relationship, and it was mentioned by the deputy mayor that that relationship is – an incredibly important relationship in council and mm. both Murray and I recognise that we've got a very good relationship so that's excellent yes. but again that relationship with counsellors as well you need to have a relationship that's a strong relationship that you can say I'm not happy with this this isn't working well this has been done wrong yes. without losing the confidence or faith of each other and you can only do that if you've got that strong relationship that's it well, yeah. congratulations
0: so, Murray on uh, your well it's not really re-employment it's not got to get to go for your job again but the fact you're back again with us for another 12 months at least <laughs>
2: Well, mate, you know what time it is. Limerick time. Limerick
1: time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think I should do a limerick on this week out of all those topics? Oh,
0: mate, look, uh, well, okay, let's let's throw something up here uh, for us. I'll let you choose a limerick Ooh, for this okay. week, a limerick this topic. A limerick, we've got to pull off the top of your head here, it pl- are you, puts
1: It puts the pressure on me, oh, doesn't
0: it? Okay, here we go then. Um, oh, look, you know what I've got to choose for you? I'll throw this right out to you. I'm going to choose for you the Senior's Christmas Morning Tea.
1: Senior's Christmas morning. Okay. There you go. I'll, I'll come up with the limerick. Just give me a second here. I'll come up with the limerick on the senior's Christmas. Okay. I think I've got one. Here you we go. you got one?
0: Okay. Rock and roll.
1: The seniors were welcomed with a cup of tea. I then recited some of my poetry. The school kids entertained. The applause was sustained. Merry Christmas to all. Yippee, yippee.
0: There it is. Well done. Well done. Well, folks, that just about wraps up again for another week. So from the point of view of that, we've obviously got the those changes out there for the Australia Day ceremony and that coming up there. Thanks very much, Matt, for outlining us that there today. Also in regards to that draft Macquarie River Master Plan, if you want to get on down there and make some changes, well, you don't have to do anything these days apart from simply jump online, have a look online, check those things out there. And again, of course, to Murray Wood, thanks, big fella, for being back. We love that. All right, well done, folks. Let's see us all next week for the Merrill Medal.
2: Nero Memo with Matthew Dickinson from Dubbo Regional Council.